A lot of people see something on the seafloor and never think about how it got there. Um, that's the only thing that I think about. I see a sponge on a rock and I ask myself, where is your mother? How far did you have to drift to find this rock? Why did you choose this rock? And where are your babies gonna go once you reproduce? My name is Kirsten Meyer-Kaiser. I am a marine biologist and I work at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. My research focuses mostly on seafloor communities and I specifically focus on invertebrate communities, things like anemones, clams, crabs, anything that does not have a backbone. Welcome to another episode of Below the Tide. My name is Liz and I'm your host. This week we're sitting down with Kirsten Meyer Kaiser to chat about her work on the east coast of North America, working with benthic communities. If this is your first time listening to Below the Tide, welcome. The goal of Below the Tide is to make marine science more accessible in one podcast. So every episode you'll have resources like photos and videos that you can find on Instagram and Twitter at Below the Tide Pod. And you'll listen to science and recent discoveries right from the scientists themselves. This week, I'm really excited to say that Below the Tide and the Tea Room at Queen's University is partnering up to promote ocean conservation. The Tea Room is a student-led, environmentally friendly, and socially conscious cafe that's located on Queen's University campus in Kingston, Ontario. The cafe gives the community access to food, snacks, drinks that are environmentally friendly, locally resourced, so that everyone can kind of have a space where they can try and make a difference. I would definitely recommend checking them out because this week they are releasing their spring drinks and from what I've seen, it makes me want to buy a plane ticket and head to Kingston because it is looking like it's going to be such a great time, especially with students going into exams. So if you are at Queen's or you're teaching at Queen's or you're in the area, definitely check them out. They are on the corner of Union and Division. And on that topic, just to stay true to who we are, I hope you enjoy this episode. Grab a coffee and enjoy. So your work revolves around ocean floor, that kind of thing. Um, What are some of the major things that you're looking at right now? The questions that fascinate me the most all have to do with isolated island-like habitats. So if you picture the seafloor, the vast majority of it is just sand or mud. It's like these big soft sediment plains. But every once in a while, you will have something that is a hard object that sits in the middle of that sand or mud. And this can be anything. So in fact, one of the most fun things for me about my research is that I don't define an island-like habitat very narrowly. I work on such a range of habitats. So this could be a rock. Um, One of my study systems is actually in the Arctic. And so I look at the things that live on rocks that have been dropped by melting icebergs and land on the seafloor. They're called drop stones. Um, Those are isolated island-like communities because out in the middle of the mud, then you have this random rock that falls to the seafloor. I also um, study shipwrecks. Shipwrecks are incredible study systems to answer questions about connectivity, colonization of a habitat, 
by definition, they are not supposed to exist. There is not supposed to be a ship sitting on the bottom of the seafloor. It's supposed to be floating on the surface, carrying people or um, cargo to various different parts of the world. So shipwrecks are, by definition, mistakes. And that fact alone opens up a wide range of interesting phenomena. For example, if there's not supposed to be a hard bottom habitat here, then there's not supposed to be any hard bottom species living here. So what are they doing here? How did they get here? Um, we can get into that a lot more. Mm. I absolutely love that, you know, why are you here question. Totally. And then the third thing that I work on is uh, coral reefs, which are actually isolated and island-like. They're connected through larval dispersal. So they have a lot of the same dynamics and phenomena as you know, the kind of inanimate things of shipwrecks and rocks. And I can answer a lot of similar questions about connectivity and understanding, you know, the future of the ocean by studying those as well. Whoa. Okay. So yeah, I just threw a lot at you. <laughs> all right. So let's start with benthic communities. And maybe you can give us a little bit of an intro to like, who is in this benthic community? What is their lifestyle like? what um you know for i don't know very much about benthic community so let's you know start there so the classic benthic ecology study is go out on a boat use some sort of a device to get a sample of the mud run it through a sieve so that you know like wash away all of the sediment grains and just keep the animals and then figure out who those animals are we refer to anything that lives in the sediment as in fauna um, and this is like, you know, the very foundational classic benthic ecology studies are all focused on in fauna. A lot of things that live in sediments are clams or worms, um, bivalves and polychaetes to use the scientific names. So tubes will like emerge from the sediment as you do the sieving. And each of those tubes usually has a worm in it. They love to like build tubes by capturing mud or sand grains in mucus. And so it can actually be a really dynamic community. It's just a, not just sediment with, you know, stuff stuck in it. It's tubes and there's some guys moving around and it's called bioturbation when they like take sediment from the top layer down to the bottom and from the bottom up to the top and turn that over. Um, so there's a lot of cool things that go on with infauna. You can have myofauna, which is super small things. These are like nematodes. Um, which are like tiny, tiny, tiny worms. You usually need a microscope to see them. Um, there's macrofauna, which is stuff that's a little bigger. Those are your polychaetes and your clams, things that, you know, you can collect on a regular sieve. But I'm actually interested in the things that are even bigger than that. Um, it's kind of funny to me that in benthic ecology, we use the term megafauna to refer to anything larger than a centimeter. <laughs> It really gives you perspective on like the, the scale that you're looking at in benthic because yeah, a centimeter, exactly. you're like, uh, okay. Yeah. If a centimeter is mega, like, holy crap, how <laughs> small are the rest of the things? By the way, if a benthic ecologist ever refers to like a whale or a shark or a dolphin, they will add the qualifier that those are charismatic megafauna. <laughs> They're two different categories. Oh my God. So I work on megafauna. 
Um, and usually epibenthic megafauna. So things that crawl around or live right on top of the sediment. Epi means on top of. So these are things like sea stars, brittle stars, um, snails, um, also some worms that, you know, crawl around on the top, but, you know, don't burrow down in and sit in one spot. Also crabs, you can have all sorts of things that are epibenthic megafauna. And the reason that I work on epibenthos is just because, honestly, it's pretty convenient because you can see them. And so when I was between undergrad and grad school, I actually lived in Germany for a year and was using a towed camera system to survey benthic communities. And so if you're using a camera, the only things that you can see are the megafauna. And that makes them a lot easier to study because you can just drag a camera over the top rather than having to physically collect the sediment in order to study them. These days, the reason that megafauna interests me the most is because those are the things that typically live on shipwrecks or rocks or coral reefs, the isolated island-like habitats that I'm interested in. And still that ability to see them with a camera means it's a lot easier to study them if I, you know, have a remotely operated vehicle, like a, a little robot that I'm driving around on the seafloor collecting video from a shipwreck, then I can see the megafauna and I can, you know, create an analysis out of that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. So are they living in complete darkness, these benthic communities? How deep are we talking? Um, so I'm not a person who restricts my studies to one particular depth. Okay, um, okay. You're just saying bottom of the ocean. Right. So let's okay. let's divide that up a little bit. Mhm. Mm so when you if you're taking a swim at, you know, on the surface of the ocean, then what you're looking at is probably going to have some light reaching it and where you can get light reaching the seafloor then you can have things like kelp, macroalgae, photosynthetic communities. So the deeper that you go, the less light that there is. Um, and it's divided into different zones. There's the euphotic zone, which is where light penetrates really well. There's the mesophotic zone where light does not penetrate very well. It's kind of the middle light zone. Um, and then you get gradually into the twilight zone where the light is starting to disappear and may not even be visible to human eyes. And then obviously the deep sea is in complete darkness. So I do not define my research by, I work at one particular depth. I work on a question of isolated island-like communities, and that happens at all depths. So the coral reef project that I have right now, honestly, our study sites for that are at like three meters deep. You can, and the water's <laughs> super clear, you can like be snorkeling on the surface and look down at the coral that you want to collect. Like we barely even need scuba for this. But on the other hand, my shipwrecks have so far been at mesophotic depths. So this is where there's a little less light than the surface, and it may not even be visible to human eyes. If you were, you know, for example, to dive that deep using, using technical scuba diving, it would look pretty dark. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that depends on the clarity of the water, and that depends on what latitude you're at. In the tropics, I've gone on scuba dives before down to about 70 meters, and you can still see pretty well. You're losing some of the like 
red colors. Um, so everything looks a little muted and like gray blue, mm-hmm. but you can still see your dive buddy perfectly well. Whereas the shipwrecks that I worked on in Stellwagen um, at about 130 meters, that I, I'm not able to dive that deep, but with our ROV, if we had turned the lights off, then it would have looked like absolute and complete darkness. Yeah. So that depends on, you know, what human eyes can pick up, what the camera on the ROV can pick up. So it is not very bright for the majority of the work that I do. Okay. And these organisms just hang out at different depths. So even like the, the sessile organisms that you're working with, they don't move around very much. No, I focus on sessile communities. So things like sponges and anemones, they mm-hmm. sit in one place for their entire benthic life. They are juveniles and adults on the seafloor. They attach to a surface. Anemones can walk around a little bit. It's actually kind of fascinating. They like have a muscular disc on the bottom of their body that they can use to, yeah, like walk is the best way to say it. They like kind of wriggle over the surface. Yeah. But they're not going to go very far. Um, So more or less, they are confined to the single shipwreck which means that the only opportunity they have to spread to another environment is when they're a larva. So most things that live on the seafloor reproduce via larvae that disperse in the water column. So the classic model is broadcast spawning, where you have males and females just throwing their eggs and sperm into the water column. They fertilize in the water column, and then you have these little baby animals that just drift around and get carried wherever the ocean current wants to take them. And then eventually when they find a new habitat, they can settle down to the seafloor, metamorphose, attach, and choose to spend their life there. So. Whoa. (laughs) That's quite, that's quite a life cycle. I feel like for people who don't really know very much about a lot of these like sessile organisms and, you know, how they reproduce and it's crazy. Like that's how they move around and that's how they colonize new spaces and. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people see something on the seafloor and never think about how it got there. Um, that's the only thing that I think about. I see a sponge on a rock and I ask myself, where is your mother? How far did you have to drift to find this rock? Why did you choose this rock? And where are your babies going to go once you reproduce? Now I'm seeing the connection to like these I, like island type communities that you're so interested in because of this larva and like this stage in their life where they are moving around and like why there? So for humans, it's kind of the equivalent of if you are only allowed to move to a different house or a different state or a different part of the world during the first 10 years of your life. Mm -hmm. And once you like wherever you are at 10 years old, you are stuck there for the rest of your life. Like think about the decision making that that it would introduce. You would have to be extremely careful about where you would want to settle. And so that's the way it is for a sponge or an anemone. They have that very, very early period of their life that they're just drifting around on ocean currents. So it's not even a very active process. They can control their position vertically, Mm 
So if they want to be in a faster current, they can go up to the surface. If they want to be in a slower current and not go quite as far, they can go down to the bottom. Sometimes currents go in different directions at different depths, so they can control their position that way. But horizontally, they can't swim against the current. So yeah, they're they're drifting around, and then the only opportunity that they have to really make a decision, if I'm allowed to anthropomorphize <laughs> non-conscious beings, um, is where they want to settle. And so when they are at the age where they're ready to settle, they can sense, you know, there's a little bit of turbulence in the water. Maybe there's a rock nearby that I could settle on. And they can attach to the rock temporarily. And then if they decide this is not a good rock, um, depending on the species, they can like pick up and move again. Just like the decision-making and like, you know, again, not to put some sort of like human characteristic on. Oh, it's really hard not to. Yeah. Like (laughs) how do they choose? How are they like, yeah, this random rock that like I chose the wrong current and now I'm at this rock and like, this is where I got to be. So there's a couple of things, cues that larvae can use to decide where they want to settle. Um, first of all, I should mention that there are a number of species that people have done lab studies and modeling, and it looks like their settlement is completely passive. They just end up where they end up. But for other species, it can be a much more active process. For example, there's this one nudibranch that's really well studied in Hawaii, and it feeds on this one particular species of coral. So there was a professor at University of Hawaii several years ago who did an experiment where he had that, you know, species of coral, one individual in the middle of this flow tank, and then he had the nudibranch larvae going along in the flow tank. And as soon as they got within, like, smelling range of that coral, as soon as they could sense, like, chemical cues from the coral that it was there, they immediately pulled in their swimming apparatus and dropped to the bottom. (gasps) So it can be a pretty active thing. It can be like, here's my prey. I'm going down. Yeah. For other things, it can be a combination. Like there's a lot of research actually on barnacle hydrodynamics, like barnacles and other sessile organisms like bryzoans and tunicates really want to settle in specific microhabitats. They want exactly, you know, this particular shear force, this level of turbulence, um, this level of, you know, an eddy. And so they can make choices based on the hydrodynamics of their environment. And the third thing is some species use biofilms. This is a coating of bacteria, proteins that the bacteria have produced. It makes this like three-dimensional matrix on the surface, mostly driven by microbes. And a lot of organisms use those biofilms as cues to tell, okay, this surface, this rock has a biofilm. That means it must have been here for a while. So it's a safe place to settle. And, you know, it's got that bacteria species that I like. So I'm going to settle there. For such tiny little things and things that are measured on centimeter, like a scale of centimeters, it's wild. Oh, larvae are even smaller than that. We're talking like 200 microns. Crazy. (laughs) They're incredibly sophisticated, crazy, tiny little animals. Oh, my God. And so because these animals are sessile and they're not moving, 
how are they eating? So if you're a sponge, I'll use that as my poster child for this. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're sitting in one place for the entirety of your juvenile and adult life. You're not moving at all. So you are entirely dependent on the water around you to bring food to you. Um, So they're suspension feeders which means that they are sucking in water and filtering out the little particulates. This could be phytoplankton. This could be little bits of dead matter called detritus. This could be some very small zooplankton. They're just eating on eating whatever is around. And actually, in some cases, sponges will eat bacteria out of the water column. So just different size fractions of, you know, little particulates in the water. I like to think of suspension feeding as one of those like Japanese restaurants where they've got the sushi on the conveyor belt. So, okay, in the ocean, there's actually friction between the water and the seafloor. So as water flows over the seafloor, there's a little friction there, which means that the current is slowest at the level of the seafloor. Okay, yeah. Okay, we call this the benthic boundary layer. So, because it's flowing over a boundary, it's a lot slower the closer you get to the seafloor, which means conversely, the current is faster the farther away you get from the seafloor because you don't have that friction effect. So, if you are a sponge and you have settled on this tiny little rock and you are, you know, flush to the sediment, you're not going to get a lot of sushi because the current, that conveyor belt is going really, really slow. Oh. If you settle on a larger rock and then you can have the current coming by faster and bringing you more particulate food, you know, per unit time. So the conveyor belt with the sushi is going a little faster. If you settle on top of a shipwreck and you are, you know, towering meters and meters off of the seafloor, then you can have all the sushi that you want because that conveyor belt is going so fast. The current is flowing past you all the time and you have a really, really high food supply. So this is one of the reasons that animals settle on shipwrecks in the first place is because it offers a better habitat, actually, than some of the natural, naturally occurring habitats in the area. Thanks for tuning in to Below the Tide this week. Make sure you hit follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and on social media at Below the Tide Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also leave a rating on the podcast to help it reach more people. And I will see you next week. Hang in there for a quick sneak peek. Yeah, so you say shipwreck, most people's first thought is Titanic. It's almost as if it's the only shipwreck in the world. It really bothers me that that's like the one that everybody thinks of. The United Nations released a report several years ago that was a convention on the protection of underwater cultural heritage that estimated there are 3 million shipwrecks worldwide. 